From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, uh, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. With many of South Mississippi's habitats fire-dependent, places like the rolling pine hills and the wet pine savannas have benefited from natural and prescribed burnings. Our guest today is Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. We'll talk about the animals and habitats affected by these fires, the Veterans Fire Corps, and the coast area's growing green economy. Dr. Major's here, ready to take your pet questions. So join the conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464 or send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. With many of South Mississippi's habitats fire-dependent, places like the rolling pine hills and the wet pine savannas have benefited from natural and prescribed burnings. We have a guest in studio today. It's Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. So he'll talk about the animals and habitats affected by these fires, the Veteran Fire Corps, and the coast area's growing green economy. And Dr. Major is here, ready to take your pet questions. So if you'd like to join our conversation this morning, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And a reminder, if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at six. So good morning to everyone. Hope that you're all doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you know, Dr. Major, we talk a lot in the summertime about uh, the heat, and uh, we've dealt with that this summer. But here lately, uh, I think a lot of uh, most of Mississippi, I think, has just been totally inundated with rain. Uh, are there any things to think about with uh, heavy rain when it comes to uh, our pets maybe making sure that uh, they've got a, a place to get out of the rain, I guess? You know, it's important. Uh, you don't want a dog just standing in mud all day long. So a good place to get out of the rain is good. Uh, we see a lot of uh, thunderstorm anxiety uh, mm-hmm. now with uh, thunderstorms rolling through. Some dogs take it quite seriously. Uh, anything from hiding to seizures to just uh, behavior that uh, would indicate distress. So uh, it may be as simple as a dog breathing real hard or something like that. But they can sense when a thunderstorm is coming many times 30 minutes to an hour before it actually comes. But, yes, keeping uh, a place where our dogs and cats can get in shelter. Cats usually can find shelter, whereas sometimes a dog it's impossible to do uh, if, if they don't have a place that they can go. All right. Uh, we're going to be visiting today with Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. Robert, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Uh, remind us again about Wildlife Mississippi and the mission of the organization. Wildlife Mississippi is a nonprofit that works across the state to make sure we've got good habitats for wildlife for future, for current and future generations to enjoy. 
All right, and uh, tell us a little bit about your work as the, the Coastal Program Coordinator. I live down in Bluxy, Mississippi and work on the coast and work on coastal issues where it might be pine savanna restoration or prescribed fire and invasive species or nature-based tourism or how to help manage habitats better so we have less nutrients going down to the sound, all kinds of coastal issues. All right. Um, and um, what, what is the idea of prescribed burn? When we talk about fire a lot of times, I come from a wildland fire and a structural fire background, and when people hear the word fire, we get upset and we think it's a bad thing, but from a lot of our wildlife perspectives, fire is a good thing. Fire is a natural perturbation, if you will, a natural disturbance in our system. Without that disturbance, they don't do well. And so a lot of our wildlife species in Mississippi and in the southeast are fire adapted, and without fire, they just don't do well. And so um, how does the idea of prescribed burning, I guess, it, uh, conditions have to be right? Uh, tell us a little bit about how, how it works. Well, let's just back, back up and talk about natural fire first real quick. And, you know, historically, fire in the southeast moved through these habitats, whether we're in the, the, the hills in Tishomingo County or whether we're in the coastal prairie down in Jackson County. Fire moved through those habitats every few years. And on the coast, it might be a two- to three-year return interval. Up in the, the interior flatwoods and up in the upper part of the state, it might be a three to five to eight year return interval and so the things that are adapted to fire over time we've gotten really good and and you know when i was growing up everybody kept their yard swept we had yard brooms we didn't mow the grass we didn't rake the yard we swept the yard with brooms and swept it down to bare mineral soil around the house which is what you did when you had a lightered house a fat pine house and now two generations later we've forgotten that we live in a fire type habitat we don't practice the fire wise things that the forestry commission says we should do to keep our, our places safe from fire and we've got structural fire and wildland firefighters and the forestry commission that's really good at putting fires out when they start so we don't have fires that move across the landscape anymore they get stopped by roads and without those fires we don't have the habitat to support as much diverse wildlife and so prescribed fire is a way to put fire back into systems and yeah it, it requires care and thought it's so prescribed fires putting fire in a specific place under a specific set of conditions to achieve a specific goal and if we're care about wildlife and so being a good steward of wildlife if, if we've done something to keep fire from being there and we want wildlife to do well sometimes that means putting fire back and so that's what we try to do with prescribed fires pick a place that needs fire where fire is acceptable and pick a set of fuel conditions weather conditions and it's not just weather to make fire control easy it's gotten more complicated over the last couple of decades it's what's going to happen to our smoke where's our smoke going to go who's our smoke going to impact how can we ignite this habitat and restore this habitat for wildlife without impacting people to the degree we can. The alternative to that is not is not lack of prescribed fire. If we don't have prescribed fire, eventually we're going to have a wildfire. And so it's not if it's going to burn, it's when it's going to burn. Can, can we burn it under conditions that we control? Uh, that's a good point that I had not thought about, but you're right. It's like if it's eventually going to happen, you might as well go ahead and control it and, and make it work uh, b both to benefit the humans and the wildlife. Exactly. I mean, we look back just uh, within the past year at the catastrophic wildfire up around Gatlinburg, Tennessee. That same thing could happen there in the, the, the upper coastal plain part of Mississippi. We get really dry fire conditions. We had people move out of these habitats and either we put fire back there on our terms or it comes back on its terms at some point. We'd look at Black Friday down in Florida about 30 years ago where fire jumped eight lanes of I-4. Uh, and we have more fire out there than our structural wildland units can respond to. And so that's kind of getting off the trail of that's getting into to human impacts from these fires. But since so 
what kinds of animals depend on them? I mean, it might be a game animal, it might be deer, it might be wild turkey, it might be northern bobwhite quail, it might be a fox squirrel, it might be gopher tortoises, it might be indigo snakes, it might be black pine snakes, it might be red-cockaded woodpeckers, Mississippi sandhill cranes. In the absence of fire, those things don't do as well. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got some open phone lines. If you have a pet question for Dr. Major or if you'd like uh, to talk to Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi, talking a little bit about uh, prescribed burning this morning. Um, what are some sources of, of natural fires? I guess lightning. What other kind of things would, would naturally result in fire? The, the, big, the big source of natural fire would be lightning. Uh, a lot of people that have compost piles know that sometimes you end up with a big pile of duff or a big pile of debris that might have washed up in a flood or whatever, and it dries out, and it's starts decomposing and creates heat and can ignite at times, but the big source is lightning. And here in Mississippi, in the, the past month and a half, have been well evident of that. Thunderstorms rolling through today across the state, and those thunderstorms can ignite wildfires. And some of those times, those things are the patch, a patch the size of a pickup truck hood. Other times, in the absence of roads and humans, those things would have been hundreds of thousands of acres. Um, is the coastal area of Mississippi a little bit more fire dependent uh, than other parts of the state? There, there are a lot of habitats in the coastal Mississippi that are fire dependent. Uh, the, the prairie regions here in the Jackson Prairie and the Black Prairie were also fire dependent systems. There's very little remnants of those left. At one point in time, we had almost 3 million acres of longleaf pine in the southeastern U.S. Uh, we got down to less than 3 million acres of that across the whole southeast at one point in time. And so we have longleaf rolling hills down in south Mississippi. We have the slash pine savannas with the pitcher plant bogs and the native orchids and all the wildlife that lives there. So, yeah, there, there's several different fire type habitats in the southern part of the state. And so how does uh, um, fire be- benefit wildlife habitat? I mean, is it uh, sort of a resetting of, of nature? Right. And, and so we learned in school, we learned about the, the, the traditional idea of succession going from bare ground to a mature forest. And at any point in time, we've got these disturbances coming in, restarting succession, whether it's a hurricane or a storm or in some cases it's a fire. And a fire may not take succession all the way back. It may hold it in a, what we call a fire-maintained system. And in the absence of fire, we have fewer species in the understory, fewer plant species, fewer wildlife species, fewer uh, invertebrate species that are the base of the food chain. Uh, and so fire fire changes the, the vegetative composition. And a lot of times it's not one fire, but it's a repeated sequence of fires at different times. It changes the structure. How does a little bitty quail the size of a quarter wiggle through that stuff if it's all thick? How does a gopher tortoise reach up and grab food if it's not down within his reach? And then also alters the forage quality. A nice tender shoot has less of the hard lignans and things, and it's more digestible. And so fire does lots of things for lots of different species. And um, so, so it's a real benefit. Uh, one, one example that I like to get out in the field when we're talking, it's gopher tortoises. And so I ask folks, how high can a gopher tortoise jump? And, of course, the assumption says I ask, can they jump? The assumption is it jumps. And we get answers ranging from six to eight inches to 50 feet. <laughs> and the real answer, of course, is that gopher tortoises can't jump. And so if a gopher tortoise can't jump, how does it get the tender vegetation and all those little berries and fruits it needs to eat? Those things have to be within six to eight inches of the ground for him to reach up and eat those things. He can't climb trees. He can't jump. And without fire, those guys can't eat. If they don't eat, they don't survive. We need to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue Creature Comforts. We're looking for any pet question you have this morning and also visiting today with Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi, talking a little bit about uh, prescribed burning and how it benefits uh, the wildlife uh, here in Mississippi. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We'll be back with more after this. 
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. We've been talking a little bit about how uh, prescribed burning and fire can actually uh, help uh, wildlife, a number of different uh, types of wildlife species that are here in Mississippi. Uh, we've got some open phone lines, so if you'd like to call in and join our conversation, please do. The number is one. 1- 877 MPB ring that's 1877 672 7464 you can always email the show animals at mpbonline.org so robert you you mentioned a number of different uh, uh animals and creatures that are benefit from uh these wildlife fire cycles and first of all i guess we could we should say i guess some people might think oh gosh if there's a fire you know that the animals are in danger but again because this is their natural habitat they're used to that they they know how to adapt and to i guess get out of the way or whatever they do uh very very seldom do you see an animal that that's killed by prescribed fire um sometimes with an intense wildfire we have more mortality but a lot of times animals are attracted to the fire you see turkey or quail jumping around the flames catching bugs or eating seeds that are made available you see this time of the year if we were burning we'd see mississippi kites and swallowtail kites coming to eat the dragonflies and bugs that are over the fire uh in the spring you'd see purple martins and so um, you know, a lot of times people say, well, my habitat's in pretty good shape. You know, I don't want to mess it up by burning. And so it's a case of you have to break an egg to make an omelet. Uh, it's, a, it's a normal thing that happens for these critters and these plants, and they're used to do it, used to it. And they're, you know, you get two inches underground for a lot of the smaller things, get in the duff and fire passes right over your head and you come back out and go. Where do the gopher tortoise go? What What's that? The, the gopher tortoises have a, a dig a burrow. They're a big burring a reptile and the gopher tortoises go back in their burrow and sometimes they don't go but a foot or two down into the burrow they don't go all the way in i've got a picture on my website uh, of a gopher tortoise wandering around during a prescribed fire he came out and wandered around and i grabbed him put him in the back of the truck and this, this was in georgia where they're not a an endangered animal we had a permit to hold him uh and uh we uh put him back in the truck finished our fire and put him right back down and he was happy right there. Uh, so lots of other animals use these gopher tortoise burrows. Gopher tortoise is what we call a keystone species. And so they make an escape place for lots of animals. There have been 300 and something animals documented using gopher tortoise burrows. Others get up in the tree out of reach of the flames and the heat. Others jump the, for the fire, we do, you think of it as a big continuous flame, wall of flame. Most cases, it's not. You can e- eke around it, particularly when we're doing a prescribed burn, whether it's a 20-acre prescribed burn or a 400-acre prescribed burn or even a 1,000-acre prescribed burn. There are places and holes that animals can get and move through the fire, and they just move around to the other side or move out in front of it. Because it's really kind of a series of small fires, isn't it, instead of like you don't do one big line of Typically, there's not a a big line of fire. It depends on on what kind of ignition pattern and things you decide to put out there for whatever reason that day. It may be a series of spots. It may be a series of strips. But very, very seldom is it a a solid line of fire. There's holes and there's ways to get out. It's a wet spot or there's a pieces move forward faster than others because our, our fuels are diverse and our habitats are diverse. Let's go to some callers on the line. So we will begin in uh, Tupelo. Will has called in today. Good morning, Will. You're on the air. So go ahead, please. Oh, hey, how are y'all doing? Um, Good. Y'all basically just talking about the question I had, so it's pretty much been answered, so thank y'all anyway. 
All right. So that was the idea of uh, of the adverse effects uh, for the animals, and and we were saying that they're very adaptive. You mentioned the the gopher tortoise, how it gets out of the way. So uh, again, because this has been a natural thing for so long, the animals have adapted and, and they know how to stay safe. Exactly. And with, without fire, some of those species start declining, and that's why a lot of our endangered and threatened species in the uplands in Mississippi are endangered or threatened because we don't have fire at the landscape scale. And one of the the ways you 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 help protect animals is the timing, right? That's a, very much of of importance when you're doing your burns. Right? The timing can be very important, and what we see is we have more lightning ignitions during the summer, which is during bird nesting season, and so that that's a that's a problem. That's when natural fires occur. That's when we start seeing some of the big impacts. And a lot of times, if if you do burn a bird's nest, they will re-nest. But if you don't burn that bird's habitat then it grows out of the conditions they want to nest in, and those birds go into decline. A lot of our neotropical migrant songbirds are in decline, and a lot of those are in fire-dependent habitats. They need shrublands. They need grasslands. And if you don't have fire, then we have an overstory forest with a midstory where they're not reproducing there. So it's a case of you got to break an egg sometimes to make an omelet. Got another call to get to, and it's uh, Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Go ahead. Hi. I wanted to ask Mr. Smith a question. I, I asked one year. I live on the edge of uh, DeSoto National Forest, and um, one year I, I stopped one of the people who were doing the burns and asked them, why do they burn in the time of year that the turkeys are, are laying their eggs and the ground-nesting birds like chuckwills, widows, and brown thrashers and all these kind of birds? Because why can't you burn another time of the year and let them go through their nesting cycles? without the without the fire uh, that's a really good question and if you look at the, the chuckwills widows are a great example uh they need bare ground to nest they don't nest where there's grass they don't nest where there's shrubs they won't won't bare ground and so if you really want to enhance chuckwills widows nesting habitat you burn during nesting season because that creates the bare ground they need for that month to nest and we see more chuckwills widows nesting right after prescribed burns than you do any other time and so they're ones that benefit during nesting season and burning during turkey nesting season that and, and quail nesting season all in the the thrashers and things that nest in the ground cover and low shrubs. Prescribed fire makes great brood habitat for the turkeys and, and quail. And so if you can burn in one area and they're nesting in another area, you can actually get enhanced survival because the, the chicks have a better place to forage and more bugs and more access to bugs. Um and if you do burn up one of their nests, they typically re-nest. They typically have a few less eggs in that nest. But you end up, if you don't burn, you may have fewer uh, chicks live, live through the next year than if you do burn. And so they burn part of the reason is availability of time and part of its weather patterns. And part of it is because we do want to enhance habitat and enhance those species for the long haul, not the, not the necessarily the very short term. Hope that answered your question. Okay, thank you. All right, Sue, thanks for the call. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to join the conversation on Creature Comforts this morning, the number is one mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 um, So does the, the vegetation and the things that burn, does that provide nutrients or whatever that helps the, the plants regrow? It can. It changes the, the, the nutrient cycling patterns. Um, it makes the things that are available in the plants in the ground. I mean, it turns the, the phosphorus in the in the plant leaves and the potassium goes back in the ground. Some of the nitrogen denitrifies with the heat and goes up in the air. Uh, but then fire really enhances the number of legumes that are in the understory. And then legumes go back and take through a, a partnership with uh, rhizobium bacteria, 
take nitrogen back out of the air and put it back in the plants and in the soil. And so it's part of a big process. Is And so there, there are scientists that are studying how fire interacts with those things. And so then if you've got this shoot that comes up after a fire, and typically if we burn when it's warm, things green up within a week. And then the day after the fire, you're out there seeing deer eating ashes, licking ashes, getting calcium and potassium and things. And then the plants shoot up. And then they're very highly digestible when they're first up. When they're very tender shoots, they're 85, 80, 85% digestible. A month later, they're going to drop to 70% digestible. And they may get to where they're less than 35% digestible and not quite as good. And so having patch fires in the landscape, make sure we've got, especially during different periods of the year, make sure we've got forage all throughout the year for these things to eat and places for them to live. So uh, if you could uh, maybe mention another, um, some of the, the uh, wildlife that benefits from uh, prescribed burning and, and, and sort of what it, what it does. You mentioned with the, the gopher tortoises, how it, it, it gives the, you know, the, that, they, that they can't jump, so it keeps the vegetation at a level that they can get to. What are some other uh, species and then how they benefit from burning? But basically anything that eats forage benefits from a prescribed fire because it makes the forage more digestible and it makes it more reachable, whether it's something that can't reach very high like a gopher tortoise or if it's something like a deer that can reach up to five or six feet high when it's standing up on its back legs. If we can bring that forage back down within their reach and alter the composition where we've got more good forbs and good weeds in that mix and make it more digestible, then it's a win from a habitat perspective. The other piece of that is is things that need to move around at ground level, things that don't climb, things that forage on the ground. Um, most of the fire-type habitats, whether it's the, one of the prairie regions or whether it's the coastal um, burned piney woods or it's the marsh out off the coast, which is also a fire-type habitat, um, or bunch grasses, and things need to move around between those bunches. When it gets too thick and too much dead duff laying there, Small animals don't have the ability to move, and that's particularly important for our ground-nesting birds, like uh, Sue from Beaumont was mentioning earlier. Uh, when those little poults are on the ground trying to run around, they need area to move, and then they need tender vegetation with lots of invertebrates to eat there within that region. So it does several things. It makes enhances forage quality. It enhances reachability, enhances quantity, and then changes the structure where we have things that can live there then. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi, and we're learning how uh, natural fires and prescribed burning can help the wildlife that lives in uh, South Mississippi and other parts of the state as well. Back to the phones we go. Uh, Mikey has called in today. Uh, Good morning, Mikey. Hey, good morning. Thank you, guys, as usual, for the great information. Um, This is especially important to me. Um, But so far you've been talking in terms... um, about, um, you know, 20,000 acres or whatever. I'm calling uh, to request information regarding a suburban sort of waterfront atmosphere that is um, maximum two acres with a house in the middle of it. Uh, An acre, you know, the marshy waterfront. Um, And I got some crazy neighbors, okay? Um, so I, I I need some help knowing. Uh, it, it, it sounded to me like it's going to be, in my situation, pretty dangerous. Talking about burning in, in an urban or suburban area can be very problematic. Part of it's smoke management, and part of it is expense. Um, to burn in the state of Mississippi, you need a burn permit. And doing the planning for the burn permit takes time, and it takes just as much time to plan a one-acre burn or a half-acre burn as it does a 200-acre burn. And it takes just as much 
maybe not quite as much equipment, but you've got to have ways to control the fire and make sure it's not going to go anywhere and uh, a plan for igniting the fire and making things happen. And so there's some cases it's just very, very difficult to put fire on the ground anymore. Uh, and some places where it's just really impractical we may need to do some kind of a, a fire substitute, a, a, a mowing or a bush hogging or a mulching or a, a, a <coughs> targeted herbicide application for invasive species or whatever, some kind of fire surrogate, if you will. And so fire is not the answer for everybody. All right, uh, Mikey, thanks for the call. And I would say uh, I would guess that you don't encourage folks to just run out there and do this willy-nilly. I mean, this, as you mentioned earlier, this is really – a prescribed thing it's 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 planned out and so uh it, an expert is needed i would guess you're a very good guesser kevin <laughs> <laughs> um and, and so that that's part of you know there, there are resources available to, to landowners and hopefully some landowners will call in with some experiences that have implemented prescribed fire uh, but there, there's some resources available to landowners through state and federal agencies the forestry commission and um, Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks has a fire on the 40 program right now, and there's several state uh, counties in the state that are priority areas there where they can get financial and technical assistance with the fire. Uh, Forest Commission offers um, prescribed fire training to give people a, a burn certification. Uh, we have a veterans fire crew that uh, started last year that's uh, between Student Conservation Association, Wildlife Mississippi, U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, and Grand Bay National Eastern Research Reserve that's offering technical assistance, putting a train crew on the ground in the coastal Mississippi to help folks. Uh, farm bill programs through the USDA have some financial and technical assistance to help. So there, there's places for people to get help. So basically you're saying a landowner shouldn't really go out and just burn his two acres. And does he need a permit to do that? All right. Landowners, need, landowners yeah. need permits to, to do prescribed burning. And if you're a certified burner and you have your permit and you follow your plan, then there's some protection from liability if something okay. untoward does happen. I don't know why, but I'm in the back of my mind. I'm remembering uh, when I was in high school, the, the the grill knocked over in the backyard, and we had a well, it wasn't prescribed burn, but we had a burn in our backyard. But it did help out the the lawn as well. So that I mean, it is interesting that that idea of re nourishing and and sort of resetting and restarting over from from the beginning. Uh, looks like we have got another caller. It's Paul in Biloxi uh, with a pet question for Doctor Major. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I just have a question about uh, joint health in dogs. They always talk about supplements and Cosequin and all that. Is that really effective or is it just uh, salesmanship? Uh, I just like your point of view because uh, I'd like to give my dog, you know, that. But uh, what, I don't know if it's really effective. What type dog do you have? I have a, uh, it's a Border Collie Lab and they, you know, they have hip problems and and I know that, you know, my vet even says, you know, you should give it to them. But I just wanted to have right. a second opinion if it's really worth it. Well, a lot of pet products do have a lot of hype and uh, salesmanship, if you will. Uh, dog food is a prime example of that. Uh, you you see a million different kinds, not a million, but you see a multitude of uh, grain-free, uh, so forth and so on. Well, the the idea with the joint supplements is actually to protect the cartilage and to, to help preserve the integrity. There are some that work. Glucosamine does not work in every animal or in every person. Some people take it, and it does absolutely no good. So it depends on the situation. I would suggest, though, that a good joint supplement uh, containing glucosamine, MSM, uh, creatine, and possibly some of the fatty acids would not be a bad thing to, to give your dog. Uh, there are others. Uh, one of them we use actually has the 
uh, chicken collagen that's been prepared uh, that some of the uh, people use from the standpoint of runners to help protect their, their cartilage. So some dogs respond well to that. There are some that are fairly inexpensive, and it really should not harm your dog uh, to put on one of those supplements. So good luck to you. Okay, well, thank you very much. That's what I needed to know. Thank you. All right, Paul, thanks for your call. Time to take another quick break. When we get back, we will continue Creature Comforts. We're looking for any pet questions you have for Dr. Major. And we're visiting today with Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. Back with more Creature Comforts after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi, and we've been talking about how prescribed burning uh, is used to mimic uh, natural fires to help uh, uh, wildlife in uh, a number of areas uh, in South Mississippi and uh, in other parts of the state as well, I'm sure. Um, if you have a question or you want to join our conversation, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Robert, you mentioned the Fire on the 40 program. If you would, tell us what that's all about. Fire on the 40 program is a program that uh, a number of different partners, land management agencies, and non-government organizations in the state work together on. Uh, Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks maintains that that program, and uh, a number of different of us help out putting it on the ground. But basically, a landowner applies for assistance doing a prescribed burn, and uh, there's a technical resource comes out and visits the site and makes sure it's it's good for a burn and make sure there's a plan and those kinds of things. And then after the landowner conducts a burn, sometimes with technical assistance, then they get some financial assistance to help pay for the burn. And so that, that program is, uh, they've got, so if you go onto the, the website or just do a, a web search for Fire on the 40 and visit the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks website, there's an application there. And um, you can see the, the seven counties or so that, um, uh, Pearl River, Forest, Lamar, Marion, Walthall, Pike, Amit, Covington, Jeff Davis, Knoxby, Lowndes, Monroe, and Prentice counties. So they're, they're scattered in three different groups across the state uh, that are priority areas. And you fill out an application, and then one of the guys or gals will get back with you and see if it, you fit the program and see if you are a, a, a eligible for technical and financial assistance through that program. Uh, so I'm just curious how um, <clears throat> you've talked about setting up and everything. How do you how do you put it out? I guess is maybe what I'm asking. Um, but basically, for for a fire to to burn, it's got to have fuel, oxygen, and and heat of some sort. And you take away any one of those things, and it goes out. So typically, we take away the fuel. We put enough. We burn to a fire break. We burn up to an existing road that's clear of fuel. We burn up to a creek, or we burn to where the it's damp. Or in some cases, uh, when things wind changes unexpectedly or something like that, you go into a piece of equipment, you plow it out or you spray it out with a with a truck. Uh, but most of the time we control the fire, put it out by controlling where the fuel starts and stops with fire breaks. All right. Uh, looks like we have another caller on the lines. This time we're going to visit with Don in Long Beach. Good morning, Don. Hey, good morning. 
Go ahead. Questions in reference to the pine beetle. Uh, can a prescribed burn be used to control it? And I'll listen to the answer on the radio. Okay. Thanks Great. for the call. Great. That, that's a great call. And no, prescribed burns really don't control pine beetles. And so, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch for every action. There's an equal and opposite reaction. And if you burn an area and burn it too intensely, we have too intense of a fire, too quote-unquote hot of a fire, and we scorch the overstory, then we can stress the pine trees, which predisposes them to pine beetle attack. And so, you know, there, there's, again, the, there's no such thing as a free lunch. A good prescribed fire, you can put a fire up under there where you don't scorch the overstory, where you don't scorch the roots and the fine roots and cause them to not take up water. But at times, um, fire can scorch the overstory and predisposed trees to pine beetle attack or burn when the, the duff layer is too, too dry and the fine roots are up in that duff and we kill a bunch of those fine roots and the fine roots turn over pretty quickly anyway, but we kill those fine roots and we haven't really impacted the overstory and the needles are still pumping out water. The tree's not taking up water and we can actually kill the tree, not by scorching the needles, but by killing the roots. So um, let's talk also now about the uh, the Veterans Fire Corps. Tell us what that's all about. Um, it's, a, it's a program that the Student Conservation Association has had for several years. We got the first uh, Veterans Fire Crew on the Mississippi Gulf Coast this past season. Um, we had uh, six firefighters trained to National Wildfire Coordinating Group standards that came with all their equipment. And uh, we worked with the Fish and Wildlife Service at uh, the Gulf Coastal Plain National Wildlife Refuge Complex and the Grand Bay near folks and the Student Conservation Association, and we had funding from NIFWF to bring those guys down for uh, three months and put fire on the ground. 80% of their time was spent on federal and state lands, or 90% of their time was spent on federal and state lands, and um, 10% of their time was spent uh, out on private lands assisting private landowners. And uh, we didn't get to everybody we needed to and wanted to that this past year, but they're coming back again for another cycle. And uh, it's it's nice to have a bunch of young, and so the, the, the Veterans Fire Crew is made up of post-9-11 military veterans that are retraining for a new job. And so that's part of the job growth down there. One of the problems with getting fire on the ground is we don't have the workforce that's trained in fire, whether that's at the national level or at the state and county level. A lot of times we just don't have the people. And so it puts uh, military veterans and a fire crew uh, is a good match for people that enjoy the military regimen and having things all organized. And so it was a really good way to get these these people come in and go through a, a training, go through several of the, the National Fire courses and get their red cards. And um, then when they come out, they are trained to go to a different civilian career that's really helpful. And so we ended up with six students or six uh, military veterans this past year, and they're all working in the natural resource field, um, five of them in fire in different parts of the, the country, Idaho, Washington, Colorado. One of them decided he was going to go back to school and get a uh, an advanced degree in wildlife management. So uh, it's pretty cool. So <clears throat> does the use of, of prescribed burning and, and having people that know how to administer it and monitor it and that sort of thing, does it help at all in our efforts to deal with wildfires? It really does. If we if we have an area that's prescribed burned, and um, I live for a, a while just outside the boundary of Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge over in Georgia, and they've had some intense wildfires there and one while I was living there. And um, when you're trying to stop it, and then I was chief of a, a small volunteer fire department that had a wildland unit. And 
when you start trying to stop a fire, you want to stop it in an area that has low fuel. It's a lot safer. And so if you've got this crackling wildfire going through a gallberry red bay jungle that's over your head and your equipment can't see how to get through there and you're getting your dozers hung up on on, on tree stumps and things, or you're going through an area that was burned one or two years ago that's nice, grassy, open, and you've got great, great visibility with fuels that are knee-high or less, then it's a whole different ball game for being able to stop the fire, and it reduces the fire danger for people further downwind or down drainage, up drainage, um, places where that fire could go. It makes it easier to control a fire, a wildfire, by having a prescribed there fire there in advance. And I think you had mentioned it earlier, said it well, it's like it's it's eventually going to happen, so you might as well do it uh, at a time in a place that you can control so you know how it's going to go in, instead of letting nature take over. Exactly. Another caller on the line. We're going to talk this time to Hugh, who's called in from Brandon. Good morning, Hugh. Good morning, sir. I just had a quick question. I um, wanted to know how when you guys do a control burn, it comes up toward, to a uh, excuse me to a creek or a river. How are the fish and the uh, aquatic wildlife affected by that? There's very very little effect on things that are living in the water from the fire. Uh, the biggest effect is probably uh, an increased availability of food by all the grasshoppers and things that are jumping away from the fire and land on the <laughs> water surface. Uh, the fish get a chance to eat. Uh, but if, if the fish is a half inch underwater, he has no impact from that fire whatsoever. Okay, wonderful. All right. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me this morning. All right, Hugh, thanks for the call. Uh, let's take one final break this hour. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've been talking today with Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. He's helping us understand more about how fire can help wildlife uh, in a number of different habitats in South Mississippi. We'll be back with more after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield and our guest today, Robert Smith, the Coastal Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. We've been talking throughout the hour about uh, prescribed burning and how it helps a number of wildlife in a number of different habitats in Mississippi. Um, so, um, Robert, what, what do you mean when you say there is a growing green economy on the coast? What we're, we're trying to, to make sure happens on the coast is that we've got people down there to do jobs like this, where we're seeing um, where there's very few uh, contractors down there that do prescribed burning. There's very And so with, with the Deepwater Horizon-related funds being released, we're starting to see more and more work on the coast. The engineering firms are picking up people. The environmental firms are picking up people. We're seeing small businesses start up, Tidelands Nursery, starting to grow plants to do habitat restoration with. Um, we're seeing more and more of those kinds of things. That's one of the things that when when we have value in something and we have people that are available to perform invasive species control or prescribed burning or putting native plants back in the understory or in a in a restoration area, then there's a more of a tie to to the property and tied to the land and understanding of how this thing works out there. And that this the what happens in the uplands affects the water quality, which affects the shrimp and the the crabs and the redfish and the speckled trout in the in the estuaries and in the sound. And so helping people understand all that goes together and having a strong green economy, if you will, that uh, the, pe- the jobs are linked to these habitat management practices makes it all better. 
And that's uh, every time you know we talk about this, it, it, it reminds me of just how interconnected the environment is. You say, as you say, um, you know, it, the, the uplands it helps, and then that will help the the shrimp industry on the Gulf Coast, for instance. So it's it's interesting how you you do one thing there, and it just has sort of a, a spiraling effect on and and builds outward, I guess. Exactly. I mean, it's all we talk about talk conceptually about the web of life and it's real everything's interconnected when you pull one string it affects something on the other side and i guess in the case like this when you have a successful program it lets other people realize that it is important to pay attention to uh, to this sort of thing and and the green economy can continue to grow exactly so um how does the wildlife mississippi uh, get involved in in that we get involved. We, we helped write the grant to bring the, the veterans fire crew down there. Uh, we're involved in the Fire on the 40 program. We're involved in helping uh, businesses and things succeed. And, you know, we're when, when a private landowner wants to burn, you've got to have a fire break put in. And a lot of private landowners now don't have the capacity to do that themselves. And so you need a contractor to do that. There's a few contractors on the coast that do that. We need more in some cases and then so you try to try to line up a contract you try to line up equipment and people to help them with the burn with the weather when they're available and just it, it really helps to have people available that can be that are trained professionals that can be paid to do that and right now oh we've got a few contractors that do prescribed fire on the coast we don't have a firm that offers prescribed fire as a service in much of the state there's a couple in some other parts of southeastern states um, but uh, and it's growing in some other places. It's growing here. The demand's growing here. But how do we put all that together? And so we're we're uh, kind of a, a broker, if you will, trying to line up all the blocks and get them stacked up where we can make good things happen. And so, um, has prescribed burning traditionally been something that's been used? I mean, are we seeing the use of prescribed burning increasing? Uh, if we went back two generations. Fire was a normal part of what was going on out here. People were lighting the woods on the fire all the time. And when, as we started to have mechanized equipment, we started to have bulldozers, and we started to having control it, and we uh, created the Smokey the Bear concept, and fire is bad. We, we've forgotten now that fire is a natural part of our system. And over the past decade or so, we're starting to see fi- people realize that, hey, if I really care about the wildlife, if I really care about these things, I need to put fire back in this habitat. And so we're starting to see a pickup, especially as, as we start – Using federal money, there's federal cost share available through the Farm Bill programs, the the Fire on the Forty program, the money that um, to help wildlife habitat, particularly endangered species and things. When there's there's financial incentives attached to these programs, we start seeing a response. And so, in terms of uh, the future for prescribed burning and, and fire on the coast, it sounds like it's the only way to go, but up, I guess. Uh, if you look at, uh, we had a caller earlier mentioned DeSoto National Forest. DeSoto National Forest and Mississippi Sandhill Crane National Wildlife Refuge are mandated by law to manage for the endangered species on their grounds. And the only way they can do that is with prescribed fire. We're going to see fire continue there as we see more recreational properties down there and more landowners that care about wildlife. We anticipate seeing more fire on private lands down there as well. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We'd like uh, If you'd like to call in, still a little bit of time left before the show ends, and the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always email the show as well. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So we talked about this idea of prescribed burning and, and how wildlife uh, Mississippi is involved, but I'm sure there are other uh, programs and things. What are some other uh, uh, activities and, and, and uh, things that uh, wildlife Mississippi is involved in on the coast? 
Um, we're involved. We've just recently finished up a uh, pilot monarch butterfly habitat initiative where we planted 10,000 milkweed seedlings in habitat patches across the coast, some in butterfly gardens, some out in native fire-maintained habitats. Again, we targeted areas that had been restored to longleaf through the USDA Farm Bill program and that were getting cost-share assistance with prescribed fire, so they had good habitat, needed some understory enhancement, and we grew native milkweeds and uh, used uh, some workforce development crews down there from Climb Community Development Center and uh, uh, the next generation of conservationists to help put those things back in the ground. So that's that's one of the things we've just finished up. Uh, we're working to enhance artificial reefs off the coast, um, any number of things. We're working to conserve existing uh, nice parcels of land uh, that are being used by wildlife. Uh, Could you talk maybe just a little bit about the philosophy? On, you know, there's so many kind of probably worthwhile efforts or things that, that could be done not only on the coast but throughout Mississippi to help uh, um, improve habitat, that sort of thing. How do you, how do you decide one over the other? Sometimes you just got to be opportunistic, um, see where you get the best bang for the buck. Um, if you've got an opportunity to plant a wildlife-friendly tree, a native plant rather than an exotic plant, if you've got a chance to um, uh, plant a, a food plot for this species and maintain it for other species, if you've got a chance to control invasive vegetation, if you've got a chance to, you know, it, it's basically what kind of opportunities do you have? And then what kind of resources do you have? How much time, how much money, how much effort can you spend? And where can you get the biggest bang for your buck? And again, you said that part of what Wildlife Mississippi does is is align the blocks in a row. So when there's an opportunity there, you try to help get the resources there to, to take advantage. Exactly. And I might add one thing that Wildlife Mississippi does a lot of, and I think we all have learned to do a lot of, is talk to all the players. Mm-hmm. Talk to the landowners. Talk to people about what do they want, what are, what are they willing to help with, what do they want to maintain, and do some planning. And we've been doing a lot of that on the coast. Exactly. And, and a lot of those plans, and some of the, the hardest things to get is to get a landowner or a land manager to say, this is my primary objective, and these are my secondary and tertiary objectives. What do I want? Where am I? And how do I get there? Uh, here is a pet question, an email. It says, I have a four-month-old bloodhound puppy. She's a sweet dog. We have her house trained for the most part. She's also good about sleeping in her kennel as we live in town and don't want to leave her outside at night. The only behavior problem she has is nipping at our hands. She wants attention, but when it's given, she gets super excited and then tries to nip our hands. Will she grow out of this, or what could we do to stop that behavior? Uh, first of all, don't encourage it. A lot of people will encourage uh, rough play, this sort of thing. I would start by having her trained to do heal, sit, stay, reward her when she does good. And uh, there's such a thing as time out for dogs. She has a kennel. And she starts nipping. You can put her. Don't use your hand to hit her or anything like that. That only encourages more uh, issues. There are pet professional trainers and this sort of thing. If you really need help, uh that you can get in contact with. But uh, having control over the pet initially, and she's old enough to learn to lead on a leash, heal, sit, stay, and uh, just do not do any of the rough play and encourage her to possibly bite. And uh, my brother owns several dogs, and I know that one of one of their dogs went to one of those uh, obedience schools uh, that, that you're talking about. Then, and he, he said the the results have been really, really amazing. So that's that's a good way. And I would say the same thing because I sometimes do this with my cat: is that <clears throat> something is cute, so you do it, and then all of a sudden, you know, like when you 
you want the cat to jump at your finger, your hand or whatever, and then when you're asleep, it, it jumps on your feet and you get mad. But it's like, well, you've taught the cat that this was a fun thing to do. So, And, and you know, the, the, the thing is, too, it's, it's cute, but it's a plaything with this puppy probably at this point. I would hope that it's not aggressive, that aggressive. So be careful and just don't encourage it and get some training going. Uh, so, Robert, as we wrap things up, uh, how can people get involved with uh, with what Wildlife Mississippi is doing? Uh, visit Wildlife Miss, W-I-L-D-L-I-F-E-M-I-S-S dot org. And uh, there's a, a place there to learn all about some of the things we do. There's a place to contact me or some of the rest of our staff with questions. Um, and so that's a great place to learn more about us. Follow us on Facebook as well. All right. Uh, Libby, uh, we forgot to mention at the top of the show, anything uh, interesting coming up at the museum? Well, they're planning an eclipse party, okay. so we can talk about that more next week, too. But uh, getting ready for the 21st, uh, the programming for adults, they do some things with kids, school groups in the morning, and then 1230, it'll be underway and getting started, and they'll start doing some serious talking about it. The, the, um, the maximum coverage for the eclipse in Jackson will be about one twenty-three, I think, or one twenty-six p.m. So if you if you show up at the museum about an hour early, they'll show you how to watch safely so you don't hurt your eyes. I know Dr. Rick was talking about that yesterday. Mm-hmm. You need to be careful how you watch this thing, but it'd be a shame to miss it. You're not going to see another one. We think what they say over thirty years in Mississippi before you see another one. So uh, if you don't go to the museum, go somewhere to watch it safely. But right, as you said, uh, Dr. Rick. On, uh, on Southern Remedy yesterday was talking about that, and we, it's interesting. We want to see it, but be sure you're safe because we yeah. all we all like our eyesight. That's for sure. Uh, Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating its 20th year of conserving Mississippi's lands, water, and wildlife. And from contributions from listeners like you. If you need to hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org/creaturecomforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and today our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Robert Smith, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's a special all-ladies episode of MPB's Season Pass with Liz Gill. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Conference. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.